0: Well, if you have a copy of the Confession tonight, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 22, and we're going to be returning back to paragraph 3. We dealt with uh, the first half of this paragraph, and primarily we'll be dealing with uh, the next uh, phrase or the next expression. Uh, So chapter 22 and paragraph 3, I'll go ahead and read through the whole paragraph. Uh, Prayer with thanksgiving. Being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue." So tonight, we're going, to, we're going to look at this paragraph, or this section of the, of the Confession. I'm going to give you an overview of the Confession, and then we're going to turn to a passage of Scripture tonight to kind of illustrate and show this truth, and to, to demonstrate how uh, this prayer is being uh, done in understanding, in reverence, in humility, in fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. So this particular paragraph, as we learned last week, is dealing with prayer that is acceptable. Uh, Prayer here, as we're seeing these words, is prayer to be acceptable uh, is to be made with understanding. Uh, Understanding simply just means uh, to know what we are, in fact, praying for. Uh, What is it that we're asking for? Uh, it's to be made with reverence. Uh, reverence, of course, is our reverence towards God. It's he who we are praying toward and praying to. And so all prayer uh, ought to be bathed in reverence also. They also mention humility. And so prayer with humility. Uh, humility here simply means because we understand that we deserve uh, nothing from God, and so that ought to humble us, that ought to make us uh, stop and think about as we're offering up prayer to God uh, that we certainly don't deserve to even be heard by God, uh, much less have our prayer answered. Uh, then the word fervency. Uh, so our prayer is to be made with fervency. That just simply means we we pray with zeal, uh, we pray with passion. Uh, now let me just say, zeal and passion doesn't necessarily... Uh, mean in the outward expression. Sometimes we hear the word zeal and passion and we think we have to be emotional and we have to be very expressive in our statements and in our. Uh, it just means we're praying uh, with intent. We're praying very diligently. And also faith. Uh, why do we pray in faith? Uh, we're praying that God will, in fact, give that which we ask for, as we learned last week, according to his will. The Bible teaches us that uh, God will answer and will give answers to prayer according to His will. But then we also see the word love. Uh, Who is it that we are to love? Well, certainly we love God. uh, But we're going to see tonight from the passage we're going to look at, uh, but our our prayer also should be marked by our love towards others. Uh, I think we're often uh, very much in agreement that we ought to love God uh, but when we pray, we also ought to pray with a love towards one another. And finally, perseverance. Uh, that just simply means to in, continue to pray. Uh, don't give up, uh, even if prayer is not answered quickly or answered in a way that uh, we believe. We are to persevere in prayer And then the last phrase, we we may or may not touch on this tonight, it talks about, and when with others in a known tongue. Um, That just simply teaches us that as we pray uh, in the presence of others, it should be able to be understood. Now, that's referencing 1 Corinthians 14, which is dealing with the uh, speaking in tongues, right? And so uh, it is to be a known tongue. We should pray so that others understand. And so we'll kind of deal with that um, as we go along. So when we think about these words, understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, perseverance, these are all Christian terms, right? These are all terms we we understand should be a part of the Christian life. They should be a part of uh, what we understand. And these all have to do with our disposition, they have to do with what is our heart attitude towards these things when we pray. Um, the confession here is reminding us very clearly that our disposition, our heart, uh, must be properly engaged. Right? That these things to be, in prayer for to be to be acceptable. Um, we can pray in an empty fashion. We can pray amiss. We can pray with a disposition uh, that is not appropriate. We kind of talked about this last week that uh, we we can pray out of some level of just obligation and our heart not being right. But notice as they wrote this, they're talking about prayer being acceptable with understanding, with reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. Uh, We could speak flowing words, but if our hearts are wrong, If our disposition is wrong, uh, really, uh, that is prayer that's not acceptable, right? So there is this, there ought to be an agreement between the disposition of our heart and the words and the attitude in which we have. And so that's really what they're getting at here. Um, So really what we say, how we pray, ought to be framed Uh, by what our heart really is, right? So uh, don't imagine uh, that just because someone says, well, I'm praying from the heart, uh, that doesn't mean that that prayer is acceptable because the heart might be wrong. The heart might be in a place where it it is not praying with understanding. It's not praying with reverence. Uh, I I think if if we were honest tonight with one another, not that we're uh, trying to grab confessions out of each other, but we've prayed to God without reverence before. We've prayed to God without understanding. We've prayed with anything but humility. We've actually had times where we've prayed to God with pride And sometimes we've not been faithful, we've not prayed in love, we've not prayed in perseverance. And he's not saying that we never do these things, but that should not be uh, the recipe for our prayer, if you will, Uh, right? So many people just simply say that I prayed from the heart, uh, so God has to answer it or God has to hear it. Uh, There's been uh, thousands of people over the years who, out of some sort of desperation, offer up a prayer to uh, to God and say, Well, you know this is from the heart, and they do it with great intensity, uh, but maybe they violate what we read last week, that they don't even pray in the name of the Son. Uh, so it's not acceptable, and they're not praying according to the will of God. Now, what I want to look at tonight, and, and primarily tonight we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, and, and um, this is the means in which I, I really think as you study a confession, this is the way we ought to do it. We, we look at these uh, footnoted verses, and we, we are looking at those, but I think we need to look at the text. Uh, and this particular one is not footnoted. But I believe that this actually demonstrates this expression here of praying with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance. And I especially want you to pay attention to the love, the word love, uh, of how this particular passage uh, frames that. So turn to Philippians chapter 1 tonight, and I want to just deal with uh, the first 11 verses of this first chapter of Philippians. Now, when we think about the Apostle Paul, uh, we would certainly know we're looking and reading about a man who, of course, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I don't think anybody here tonight would disagree that Paul did not know how to pray. Um, What Paul prayed for, how Paul prayed, uh, even if we think about the book of Ephesians, especially when he's praying uh, for the church at Ephesus, uh, gives us this pattern of of really what acceptable prayer is, and so when we look at this, remember that Philippi uh, was a Roman colony, and as this Roman colony, it was a chief city in Macedonia. And Paul, in the Book of Acts, we're told in Acts sixteen, had received special instructions to go to this place. Uh, We read in Acts about a lady by the name of Lydia. We see the conversion of the jailer. This was all taking place at Philippi. And so ultimately, as a result of Paul going to Philippi, there were a number of people converted. There was a church that formed at Philippi. And when Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, he was in prison. And he was in prison at Rome when he wrote this letter. Again, I think the context and the backdrop of when and how and why Paul is writing is of the utmost importance. He mentions within this entire epistle, he mentions the chains. He mentions that he's in bondage. He mentions being in the palace. He mentions some others that are there and those who had been with him. But when you read the epistle, you can see the heart that Paul had towards these people. He was not writing a general letter that was just simply, I just want to fill you in on the happenings here of what's happening here in Rome as I'm in prison. He writes with an intensity, and he, especially here in these first verses, he speaks to them about the prayer that he makes for them. Now, we're looking at this this title of prayer is worship in the second half we looked at last week. So if if you want to subtitle this, I just subtitled this tonight, A Prayer Letter from Paul to the Philippians. A Prayer Letter from Paul to the Philippians. Now remember, why why were the Philippians dear to him? Well, he was the preacher that had brought the gospel to them. And upon hearing that he was a prisoner in Rome... Uh, they actually sent their minister, Epaphroditus, to, uh, to go to Paul while he's in prison. And this is the letter that he sent back with Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus is sent from the church at Philippi. He goes and visits with Paul. Paul pens the letter and he sends the letter back. And so this is the letter that Paul wrote from prison and sent back to the church at Philippi. Now, let's start reading here in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 11. It says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge, in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God you can just read those first 11 verses and you can, you can just see and read and hear Paul expressing a great deal of love and affection for the church of Philippi. He reminds them, he speaks about his imprisonment, not to draw attention to himself, but to just simply state it as factual that he is in bonds, right? Right? But what is Paul doing? Paul is not writing a prayer letter saying, brethren, what I would ask of you to pray for me is, would you pray for my release? Would you pray for the prison guards to treat me kindly? Would you pray for me? Paul's doing the exact opposite. He's praying for them. He's not requesting prayer specifically for himself. He's praying for them. Again, think about his circumstances. Think about his situation. Paul is in prison for the gospel, for the cause of Christ, and yet he's trying to encourage them in their afflictions, in their trials, and in their struggles. Now, we see even in these first 11 verses that Paul is reminding them and admonishing them that they ought to love one another, they ought to be unified, and they ought to have peace. These are the things Paul was praying for, for them. Now, as the letter goes on, which we're not covering all of this tonight, he does later warn them about false teachers. He warns them about those who are trying to mix Judaism with Christ, trying to mix the law and the gospel, mixing grace and works and salvation. And he also speaks about exhorting them to live a holy life. But he also takes time to give thanks to them, to thank the church at Philippi for taking care of him while he's in prison, while he is suffering what probably no one else in Philippi is ever going to deal with, Now, you notice that in these verses, as we read, Paul, although he is the sole author of this letter, he includes Timothy in his opening greeting. Now, why did he do that? Well, first of all, he did that because when Paul preached at Philippi the first time, Timothy was with him. So he's writing on behalf of himself and Timothy, and we're told in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 23, that Paul is, had planned to send Timothy to them once again. So he was planning for Timothy to come to them. But there's also this wonderful picture that uh, Paul shows us about how there has to be an agreement between what we believe, or in other words, our doctrine, and love. So love and doctrine have to be in agreement. You can't just say, I have love, but have faulty doctrine. And you can't just say, I have sound doctrine, but I don't have love. You know what Paul does in almost every one of his letters is he firmly and completely understands the balance between love and sound doctrine, right? Now, brethren, that's important. It's important at our church. It's important that we have love for one another and sound doctrine. Paul doesn't say here that I am an apostle when he writes this letter. Notice what he says he says, the servants of Jesus Christ. Here he refers to himself as a servant, he refers to Timothy as well as being a servant. And of course, he writes to those at Philippi, he mentions the bishops or the pastors, the deacons, grace be unto you, peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's typical way of greeting. So in verse 2 through verse number 5, this part of Paul's prayer letter to the Philippians is a prayer of thanksgiving and a petition, A prayer of thanksgiving and a petition from verses 2 through 5. What does he pray for them in verse 2? Peace. He prays for peace to not only be in them, but among them, right? So he's praying for grace and peace. Now, Paul was not just saying that as a matter of cliche. Paul was truly praying that God's grace would be upon them that God's peace would be upon them. Again, we learned last week from Matthew 6 about how Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. Paul, in effect, and in the same sense, is giving us the pattern of what acceptable prayer ought to look like. Praying for the grace and peace of God to be upon them and to be in them. Look at verse number 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now think about about what remembrance encompasses. I thank God every remembrance of you. Uh, This is a reference to Paul thanking God for every thought and every memory that he has of that church at Philippi. Again, don't lose sight of the fact that Paul is in prison. If you lose sight of the context, you lose sight of really the heart of Paul. Again, he's not asking... I really need you to pray for my release. He's thinking about them. We were just talking today after dinner about what a selfish society we see around us right now. I mean, again, we're victims of the present, but society is so about themselves. And we can get selfish about ourselves. We can make our prayers all about us and all about what we're going through and all about what we're struggling with. And yet, if prayer is really to be acceptable and prayer is to be the worship of God, certainly there are moments and times where we gotta pray for ourselves. But what what is Paul teaching us here? Paul is showing us that he is thanking God for others. Look at verse number four, he continues his thought. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy. Paul's remembrance of this church at Philippi and his memory of them brings him joy. Again, joy in a prison. Joy in Rome. Again, Paul is in Rome. And yet here, he has great joy. Verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He thanks them and thanks God for the fellowship that they have in the gospel. The unity from the very first day until now. So we see Paul is truly living up to what the paragraph in the confession talks about. Paul's praying with understanding. He's praying with an understanding of not only his circumstances, but he's understanding God. He continues to say, I thank my God. That's reverence. Who allowed him to be in the prison house? God. God sovereignly and by his providential hand has placed Paul in the prison house and he's still thanking God for it. He reveres God. I thank God, for every memory that I have of you, this is the attitude that we ought to have when we pray with understanding. We ought to cultivate this prayer attitude towards other believers. You know, sometimes we can be guilty of judging and criticizing and finding fault with other believers instead of thanking God for one another. Again, it's easy to pray for yourself, brethren. It's easy. Nobody has to teach you how to pray for yourself, but I will tell you, it is a difficult task to start praying for someone else and putting them above yourself. And that's what Paul was doing. Now, we could sit here tonight and we could say, yeah, but that's Paul. That's not what's required of us. I I beg to disagree with you. This is the heart attitude that we ought to have. This attitude to pray with understanding is we're understanding not only who God is, but we are told that even in our studies in 1 John, we're told how do we, what's the greatest evidence that we have passed from death unto life is love for the brethren. You can have it all doctrinally right. But if you don't have love for one another, then to what to what value is it? So we not only thank God for one another but we pray for God's grace and peace to be with other believers. Again, I hope you folks know me well enough to know I'm not I am not teaching and preaching this tonight to make you feel guilty. I'm I am simply showing us that this is really the way our attitudes ought to be. That we ought to pray for one another that God's grace would be on each other, that God's peace would be upon them. And and so it, it's going to take the spirit of God to be able to teach us to pray this way. We, we saw this last week when we were reading the, doing the first half of the confession. It says, For prayer to be accepted, it must be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit. This is not natural. It is not human to be more concerned with others than yourself. That is a, that is a work of God. And that's what what you see happening in the life of Paul. You see Paul is completely being guided by the Spirit. And then notice he says, verse 6, "...being confident of this very thing, that he..." That's a reference to God. "...which hath begun..." Right. So God as the author, a good work in you, "...will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ." Now, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving and petition here and the joy that he has on behalf of this church is a confident joy and he's persuaded that God's work of grace that was begun in them would result in their ultimate glorification. Paul's praying with understanding. He's praying with confidence. He's praying in fervency. He's praying in faith. In those six verses, we've already seen Paul illustrate exactly what that acceptable prayer should look like. He certainly loves these people. He loves them more than he loves his, his, his own self. He loves them more than he loves his freedom. He loves them because God has done a good work in them, and he knows confidently that God will finish that work. The good work, of course, is the work of regeneration, the the work of conversion, the salvation, and Christ being formed in them. Notice he uses the word begun. It, It is not a finished, completed work yet. Yes, we are saved. We are being saved, but one day we will be finally saved when we do awake in His likeness. We shall see Him as He is. He uses the word work. It's a work in you. Christ does a work in us, does a work for us, sanctifying us, making us new creatures and new creations in Christ. What's Paul thanking God for? That God does the work. That God is the author and the finisher of our faith. That salvation is From the Lord, from beginning to end. It's all of God. Paul has confidence in this that God, Paul is expressing how joyous it makes him to see God's grace at work in their life. And then, verse seven again, notice Paul uses expressions that, you know, by today's standards, People would, but, and they've tried to do this with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They've, they've tried to weaken him. They've tried to say that Jesus was a, just a, kind of a, a weak, very calm, very non-offensive, you know, just a very weak and mild man. Well, look at, the, look at the words that Paul uses here. He says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Now, not to be too focused on the physical here, but I'm not so sure that you would have found a tougher man than the Apostle Paul, what he endured. And yet here's this man saying, I have you in my heart. I, I am, I am uh, so confident and I, you are so dear to me that God kept these people on Paul's heart continually. Well, what was he thankful most for? That this church at Philippi, who he had the privilege to preach to, where there had been conversions by God, where God had done this mighty work, he was thanking God the fact that they stood by him. They stood by him in love. They stood by him in the defense of the gospel. He says it right there in verse 7. He says, I have you in my heart in as much or for this reason as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. Now, Paul's not saying this is my grace. I'm I'm the author of it. What he means here is the same. You Church at Philippi are a partaker of the same grace that I have in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that when we we gather together, whether it's a Wednesday, whether it's a Sunday, when we gather together as believers, we are all partakers of the very same grace that Paul's talking about here. This is not some different grace. This is that grace that we sing so many hymns about. This is that grace. And that is something to be thankful for. That is something to thank God for in others. Again, I am I, I biblically speaking, we are not told to not pray for our own afflictions. And we are not told that we should not pray for the afflictions of others. But I will tell you, there is something here about Paul simply just praying out of love and humility and praying and demonstrating the love that he has for fellow believers. That's what's on display here. Paul is is demonstrating what the heart of a believer towards other believers ought to be. Paul is simply saying, it's very right and appropriate for me to have this confidence and to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart as being a partaker or a sharer of this marvelous grace, this grace of God. God's grace was just as real to Paul in the prison house As it would be if he was seated in a church house like this. Right? God's grace is still just, just as good to Paul in chains. Yet think about it. Paul had every circumstance, every reason in the world to say, God... I have been a faithful servant of yours. I have done everything you've told me to do. I've gone everywhere you told me to go. And what thanks do I get? I find myself in prison. And yet he thanks God that God's hand put him there and he thanks God for people who stood with him. That's the perfect demonstration of that paragraph of acceptable prayer. He understands he acknowledges and reverences God. It's humble and certainly fervent. And then notice nine, verse 9. And you, could, you could break this up into a few different sections, but this is just a continuous prayer here. Again, notice what he prays now. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge, in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. We might phrase it this way that your love may abound yet more and more, that your love may overflow more and more. He's talking about growing in grace. People, people talk a lot about, I, I want to grow in grace. I want to grow in the knowledge of God's grace. To grow in the knowledge of God's grace also includes and must include growth in the grace of the love for Christ and his people. Some people say, I'm growing in grace so rapidly, but they have no love for God's people. They have no love for other believers. Then you're not growing in grace. Remember, doctrine and love, they have to match up. If we don't have love for one another, then we are not growing in grace. That your love, he says, may increase in knowledge. There's that understanding again, and judgment. Now, when we talk about our love for Christ, our love for Christ is not blind, Right? It's not a, a love for Him without an understanding of the love that Christ has for us. But our love for His people also is not to be blind. We know Him. If we know Christ, the more we love Him. The more we know Christ, the more we love Him, the more we're going to love His people. They go hand in hand. That's why the Bible is not Shy to mention repeatedly, if you do not have love for the brethren, the love of the Father is not in you. And yet, here Paul is giving us this prime example of this. We know Christ, and the more we know about him and his perfection, the more we love him. But we also begin to understand other believers. Right? We begin to understand that there are other believers who are going through difficulties. There are other believers who are going through things that they need us to pray for them and with them about. Partly what happens, we start to grow spiritually, and even the way we pray, is we begin to understand and discern what's truly valuable, what really matters. He speaks about approving things that are excellent. Now, this this means exactly what it sounds like, that you will learn to have a spiritual sense of what is really valuable and what real excellence is, right? There's a huge difference between Christian love and the love of ourselves. You when know the, you know the doctrine that Christ teaches, you know the, 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 the works that Christ has done when you understand faith, when you understand what Christ has done for you, there's a knowledge that shows us what is excellent, what is of real value. He says that you may approve. That word approve doesn't mean to like veto or approve it. It means to discern the very best. It means to discern that which is right. That's understanding, praying with discernment, that you might be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere in your desires after God, sincere in your desires to please God. Part of that, I believe, does include that if we sincerely want to follow after God, we're not going to intentionally cause another believer to stumble. We're not going to pray for the downfall. We're not going to rejoice in the downfall of another believer. Right? Sincerely following after God. Until when? Until the day of Christ. Be able to discern what is right. It is the love of Christ. To love Christ is to love one another. We are to be able to discern what's best. We are to discern what is correct. And then he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Now this filled with the fruits of righteousness refers to our our right standing before God. In other words, what we're doing is for the glory of God. It's for the glory of Christ. It's not for our own advancement, right? So Paul's, Paul's showing us here that prayer is not something that we just enter into lightly and we just enter into it and we just kind of uh, mumble our way through it, that we don't stop and think and actually shape what we're going to pray, who we're going to pray for. Now folks, I, believe me, we, we wouldn't be having prayer meetings on Sunday morning if I didn't believe this, but I will tell you this, yes, there are times when we should be praying specifically for the health needs and praying for what people are going through and praying specifically for those things, but there's also just as important to be praying prayers like this where we're praying for God's grace to be on others where we're praying for the peace of God to be on others, that we're praying for one another to actually increase in knowledge and in judgment and in sincerity, and that we would learn what the real value is. Prayer, like a lot of other spiritual, I'm going to use my air quotes just because that's what I do, are spiritual rituals, the things that we do, be, are, become very habitual. In other words, prayer becomes something we just do out of habit. We don't stop long enough to frame. Why, what do I really need to pray for others in my church about? What, what really do they need? What, what, is the, what, what, is, what is the great spiritual concern that we have for them? Prayer is worship. Again, we, we have been duped into believing that worship is just this thing that we do at a certain point during a church service. And that's just not true. Worship is the Christian life. Worship is 24-7. Prayer is an act of worship. How is it an act of worship? Because you're, you are praying to a God, the God of the universe. You're acknowledging that all things are in, by, and through Him. No. No. These are the realities of... Paul is not just saying, hey, I, I, pray, for, I pray for this whole family over here. I pray for this country over here. I pray for this person over here. He's talking about framing and not just making general requests, but praying specifically for God to work in their life. And to do it in a me and a manner that glorifies God. Now, the end of the confession does make mention, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it does make mention of when we're praying with others in a known tongue. Now, we don't have that problem here in Springfield, Ohio, typically. If I call on someone to pray or I stand up and pray, I typically don't have to worry about, is everyone going to understand the prayer? But there should be prayer with understanding. There should be prayer that is understood. It is in a known tongue. It means we should pray with a, in a means that people who are there with us can understand. Now, the writers of the confession, you could see, they had in mind 1 Corinthians 14 13 and 19 and 27 and 28. And he's simply saying that we should pray in a, in a, in a manner that edifies. We should pray in a manner that that exhorts and builds up. We should pray in a manner that is understandable. So that at the end of a prayer, for example, when we all say together, amen, you realize the word amen is an acknowledgement that we agree to what has just been prayed for. It's not just something you tack on at the end because the prayer is over. You can't amen something you don't understand. You can't amen something that's not fully understood. Even the words we use. What I love about what Paul, even in this passage that we read, he's using language that is not difficult. Difficult. Right. Part of discernment is to also understand that when we pray, we should speak before God in a way that's edifying to others around us. One of the great things I love about this church, one of the many things was that decision that we made years ago to keep our children in this building, in this sanctuary together, this chapel together. But you also understand that when we did that, they also ought to be able to understand what's being prayed for they ought to they may not understand all the depth of it but they should be able to understand and enter into prayer with us right doesn't mean that we pray simplistic prayers like now I lay me down to sleep but we ought to pray with understanding. We ought to pray so that others can understand can understand it very clear and straightforward. I was going to share this with you last week, but I wanted to finish this sec this paragraph tonight. And this is from J.I. Packer, and he, he writes this about prayer. He said, God made us and has redeemed us for fellowship with Himself. And that is what prayer is. God speaks to us in and through the contents of the Bible, which the Holy Spirit opens up and applies to us and enables us to understand. We then speak to God about himself and ourselves and people in his world, shaping what we say as a response to what he has said. This form of conversation, prayer, continues as long as life shall last. Prayer should be understood. Prayer should be done with reverence. Prayer should be done in humility. Prayer should be fervent. Prayer should be with faith. Prayer should be in love. Prayer should be with perseverance. And prayer should be in a known or understandable way. So maybe, at the very least, we learn a little bit more about what acceptable prayer looks like. Now, next week, I will tell you, it's a challenging paragraph. It's challenging because it's things that are sometimes hard for us to discern. Paragraph 4 says, Prayers to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter. But not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. That's a challenging, it's a challenging paragraph to consider. We'll start looking at that one next week. But I hope this will at least challenge us tonight to think about how Paul prayed, how he prayed for others, and I hope it will challenge us of how we also pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the ability that you give us, the desire that you've placed within us to even come before you in prayer. Father, may we learn to be discerning in what we pray, how we pray, and maybe even more importantly, to whom we're praying to. Father, may we not be shallow and simplistic and flippant in the prayer that we offer, whether it's in private prayer or in public. Lord, may we see the great and glean from this passage tonight, the great emphasis the Apostle Paul put on prayer as he penned through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God, make us a praying church. Lord, as we have been asking over this last year, teach us to pray properly. Teach us to pray according to your will. Teach us to to pray in humility and to not be selfish and to truly pray and to love one another. Father, help us to even see tonight The beauty of your church. Imperfect as it is. Sinners saved by grace. But yet given this wonderful privilege. To be able to come before the very throne of God. Not only just in time of need. But at any moment of every day. To pray without ceasing. May we just praise you for the great privilege and the joy that that is. We ask all these things through the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.